Excuse me. The psalmist writes, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble and will deliver him and, and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my, sal my salvation. Amen. Father God, as we open your word together today, we ask that you would be our fortress, our refuge. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to be our mighty fortress, to overcome the enemy. And Father, as we learn today a little bit about this battle that we face. We recognize that the enemy is active even now, seeking to deceive, distract, and, and discourage us. So we pray with the authority of your son Jesus, who has already won the battle for us, that you would silence the voice of the enemy, that you would set aside from our hearts all of the distractions, all of the things, good or bad, that nag at our minds and pull at our hearts, so that we could receive your word, not some preacher's word, but your word. Father, this time we set aside specifically to gather as your people for you. May you receive all the glory and honor and praise today. We pray this in the precious, son of your, precious name of your son Jesus who died for us. Amen. You can be seated. That psalm, <laughs> such a psalm of comfort, and yet um, even within our own family, it's been a struggle at times because sometimes, here's a shocker, the harm does come to you, doesn't it? Sometimes that doctors report that you have prayed so hard against turns out to be cancer. Sometimes people you look up to fail and fall. Sometimes ones you love die. How can God say through the psalmist, we know that this is the word of God spoken through a man of God, how can the psalmist say in this infallible inspired word of God that no harm will come to you? 
that you will rest in the shadow of the Most High and know that you're protected. Sometimes we feel like that's just not true, don't we? We don't want to admit it. We don't want to say that out loud. But let's be honest, sometimes it doesn't feel right. I'm going to read to you the lyrics of a song a song you may be familiar with. It was written in 1939. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him. For those of you not familiar, ere means before. He loved me ere I knew Him. And all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory Beneath the cleansing flood. So far, so good. What a beautiful song. We've sung it so many times throughout our lives if you grew up in the church that maybe you don't even hear the words anymore. But you feel that victory. Oh, victory in Jesus. Second verse of the song says, I heard about His healing, of His cleansing power revealing, how He made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, Dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. But what if He doesn't? What if you're lame and Jesus doesn't cause you to walk again? What if you do lose your eyesight? What if that job doesn't happen and you lose everything? What if that worn out feeling and that pain turns out to be lupus, fibromyalgia, or something you can't control? Or that uneasy feeling you have during your pregnancy means you're actually losing the baby. Then what? Today, as we continue our journey through the book of Luke, we're, we're in this Dear Theophilus series as Luke writes this letter to his friend with the intent of it being read among the churches Luke knows exactly what's going to happen with it. That's the tradition. That's the practice. And he writes this, as he says in chapter 1, for the reason of a sure foundation. He writes to Theophilus and to us that we might know the certainty, the sureness of what we've been taught. As we've been walking through this, we've seen Jesus born grow, develop a, a local ministry. In chapter 9, it begins to transition as he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Now we're in this middle phase of the earthly ministry of Christ. And as he's heading toward Jerusalem, if you've been with us, you know that he's already chosen his 12 apostles, 12 special messengers that he will leave as delegates, I guess we'll say, to operate the church. He knows where he's going. They don't get it yet. Then he sends out the 70 and sends them into the region of Judea to prepare the way. He's headed to Jerusalem, and they're going out, and they're now doing the miracles. He's been doing all these signs and wonders. Now his delegated folks are going out and doing these signs and wonders. All to prepare the way, to tell everybody around, repent. What does that mean? 
Change your mind. Change your thinking. Change your direction. Turn from your way to God's way. Because the kingdom of God is near, even at hand. Now in chapter 11, having gone through, <clears throat> excuse me, having gone through um, uh, his teaching on prayer, his uh, disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray like John's disciples learned to pray from him. And Jesus gives them instruction. We talked about that last week. And then right after we see that in Luke 11, Jesus does some more doing. It's interesting, though, how Luke writes about it. Very nonchalant. But what happens after he does the doing is where stuff begins to come together or, as it were, come apart. Jesus is going to teach us here a little bit about spiritual warfare. Now, a lot of us have grown up maybe hearing that term, or maybe you've seen it on the television, and you've seen folks with all kinds of wacky ideas giving you all sorts of formulas and techniques on how you're going to beat the devil, how you're going to overcome and be able to win this spiritual battle. Jesus makes it pretty simple. It's funny how God does that. He created reality, and the basic nutshell of faith is to align our thinking with his reality it's really not anything more or less than that it's trusting that god is god and he knows what he's doing it's being able as tony evans would say it's being able to act as if it is so even when it is not so so that it may be so simply because god said so i love tony evans that's some real preaching there. As we look at chapter 11, we're going to read through this together. So you're going to want to have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Uh, Mr. Gary will take care of you. He'll make sure that you got one. We've got plenty. If you don't have one to use today, use it. If you don't have one of your own that you can use and wear out, maybe one, that, uh, maybe one you've got at home has the little tiny print because you got it when you were a little kid and it, it does not work for you, take one of these. Maybe it's in a language you don't understand. You were, you've got an old King James Bible and, and you love it and it's wonderful, but you just don't quite get it all the time. Take it. Take all you want. Give it to your friends. We've got more. We'll get more. But we need to have God's word in our hands, not just hear some guy talk. So if you need a Bible, put your hand up. Mr. Gary will make sure you got them. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. We're going to read through this today. And as we do, we're going to see some principles that Jesus mentions. Before we get into the, the preaching kind of stuff, and you know, I say that, but there's a very good chance I'm going to get distracted and get excited and start preaching. But before we do that, I want to read some scriptures with you so that I don't get caught up and not get to the Word because what matters is not the points in a program. What matters is understanding God's Word. How do we deal with this? As we get into Luke 11, Jesus, after teaching on prayer, we pick up in verse 14. He's continuing on his ministry. I love hearing those pages turning. Here we go, from verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Period. End of verse Jesus is doing a thing that he's done over and over again. So Luke is not really spending a lot of time on it. 
It's no longer really that shocking to Luke or to the disciples of Jesus because they've been seeing it. From the get-go, Jesus has demonstrated that he holds all authority over the material and immaterial realms. Everything that has ever been created, spiritual, physical, emotional, if there's anything that exists, Christ has authority over it. He is sovereign. So it's not shocking. It also tells us, because of this brevity on this point, his nonchalantness about this amazing miracle, that's not the point of this passage. Jesus does this amazing thing, no longer amazing to Luke, but the crowd, not the disciples who have known him, but those who are coming along following, they're amazed. Verse 15. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that's another name for the devil, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. That's going to allude to the passage we'll get to next week. So Jesus is going to talk about this sign thing. It seems unlikely that those who are amazed by it are now beginning to doubt and say, well, he's clearly of the devil. Maybe. That's possible. More likely what we're seeing is that those same religious leaders who throughout the previous chapters have set their face against Jesus, who decided many chapters ago, we got to get rid of this guy. Either they're the ones saying this or they're the ones putting folks up to this. Could it be just regular folks? Sure, we could. Doesn't seem likely. <clears throat> In any case, that's being said, and some are saying, we need a sign. You know, because you're casting out demons and feeding 5,000 people, that's not enough of a sign. <laughs> Verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So it's not super clear if he's saying that your, your followers, the followers of these religious leaders, it's a pretty clear indication that that's who's bringing this up. It's not... It's not real clear if he's saying, your guys are out there driving out demons. What name are they using? What authority are they doing it by? Or if he's saying, your dudes aren't doing anything. Demons have been hanging out, and you're not doing anything about it. Therefore, you're, you don't really have a leg to stand on. In either case, he goes on, and he says, if, if that's the case, whatever, they are your judges. Either the fact that they are in some name or the fact that they're not at all. This is your judgment. Verse 20, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, not by Satan, but by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He continues, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Before I continue this paragraph, imagine you're the person Jesus just cast this demon out of. 
You were mute. You couldn't speak because you were oppressed by a demon. Jesus says, demon, you're gone. You have no authority here. Now you can speak. You are listening. When he says, when an evil spirit comes out of a person, whoa, hey, that's me. That just happened to me. Your ears are perked. And Jesus says, when an, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. If I'm the guy that just had the demon cast out of me, uh, I'm, I'm on pins and needles right now. I, I don't want that. I've been through that oppression. I don't want this anymore. Verse 25, when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. You're worse off after having had a demon, an evil spirit, removed from your life. You're worse off now than you were before that. How can that be possible? As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. But he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Our core reality today as we look at this passage is that it does no good to get the devil out if I don't get Jesus in. I don't want to hear about exorcisms. I don't want to hear about how you cleaned your life up. None of that. And none of that does any good. It does no good to get the devil out if I don't get Jesus in. Say that with me. It does no good to get the devil out if I don't get Jesus in. That's what he's saying here. As we have looked at this, it's a pretty simple situation. Jesus does what he's been doing. He demonstrates his authority. He demonstrates exactly who he is. People aren't receiving it. Some are. The leadership is not. And they're saying, obviously, you're from the devil. Show us a sign that you're from God. And Jesus has you know, got a little Marshawn Lynch. Bro, I've been here the whole time. So I, what sign do you need? I've been here. I've been demonstrating my authority over everything. Not just over demons, but yes, over demons, over everything. He's not wasting time with these folks. But he does instruct. How gentle of our Lord to instruct when judgment is deserved. We're told in John that the Son of Man didn't come to condemn us, to judge us, but to save us. Because the bad news is, we already stand condemned. Our default state, if we do nothing, if we grow up and have great lives and we are, are just good, honest, hardworking, tax-paying citizens, then we go to hell. Because we stand condemned already. He came to save us. He came to give life. The enemy is here to take it away. Before we get too far into um, preaching here, I just, it's not one of my points per se, so I just want to talk about, I just want to talk about football. Have you ever seen a football team that is going 
great guns, everything's going well, they're running like a well-oiled machine, and then stuff goes wrong. And all of a sudden, guys start blaming each other. Quarterbacks yelling at the linemen, if you just block, receivers running at the quarterback, yelling at the quarterback, I was open, why don't you throw me the ball? Running backs yelling to the coach, coach, give it to me. We're on the one yard line in the Super Bowl, give it to me. <laughs> Three of you got that. Um, when a team starts to fight against itself, it doesn't matter what sport it is, you're not gonna have any success. The NBA is great for this, great drama. I don't really watch a lot of NBA, but there's a whole lot of drama headlines going on all the time. This guy can't get along with that guy, and this guy wants to be on that team constantly. If a team, if a house, if a kingdom is divided against itself, what good can possibly ever happen? Side note, let's take this aside. Away from what we're talking about right now, it's related, but we're not going to be able to develop because my wife's going to get upset if I preach for two hours. But if you're in a home where the mother and the father are not seeing eye to eye, we're bucking against each other all the time, you will always have discord. There is no scenario where you have a healthy, happy upbringing for children when those who are leading the family are at odds. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So those of you who are raising a family, get that in your heads. You cannot go two different directions. You can't. Horses pulling a plow have to pull the same direction. We've got to be aware of that. Back to the text, back to what we're talking about here. Um, <clears throat> we need to understand that there is a battle going on, and this battle is not necessarily what we think it is. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're in Luke, you're going to turn to the right a little bit. Past John, past Acts, past the book of Romans. And you've got two Corinthian letters. We're going to go to the second, to chapter 10. When you get to chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 3 to 5. Paul writes in verse 3 and following, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We're in a battle, but it's not a physical battle. That would be easy. It's not just about the circumstances going on around you. There is a spiritual battle going on around you that you may or may not be aware of. You don't see angels and demons. You may not even be thinking about it. 
There are circumstances that go on in your life that are impacted by that battle. We see that in the passage we read in Luke 11. There's a spiritual attack happening and it manifests itself physically in this individual not being able to speak. It's not to say that's always the case, but that's where this battle is taking place. But Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, don't misunderstand. This isn't a carnal battle. This ain't about your circumstances. It's not about your physical issues. Those are just tools. Those are tools that the devil uses to wage war against you, but it's a spiritual battle, and we're not waging war on that level. The battlefield, the battleground is your mind. The devil wants your mind and your heart because his goal is to turn you away from God, to turn you away from Christ specifically, the only way to have a relationship with the Father. And if he can use your circumstances to do that, if he can get you trapped in the physical aspect so that you're chasing after your best life now when God has something better for you that you can only find on the other side of that suffering, while you're chasing your prosperity, you're losing the battle. This is about all of these spiritual activities that are exalting themselves above the knowledge of God. Turn to James 4, if you would. Still going toward the back of the book. You're not to Revelation yet, but they start getting skinnier back here. The book of Hebrews is a little larger, so if you see that, James is the next book right after that. Chapter 4 is right between chapters 3 and 5. I found it very convenient to be located there, much easier to find. <clears throat> Excuse me, our focus is primarily on, uh, on verses 7 and 8, but I'm going to start with verse 4 and read through verse 10. James, the brother of Christ, writes, You adulterous people. He's writing this to the church, by the way writing this to us, to believers. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? That doesn't mean don't care about the world or don't love the world. Don't get caught up in it. Don't try to be like it. Don't try to fit in. If you're like everyone else, then you are contrary to God's plan. God is holy, and He's called His people to be holy. Holy means set apart and other. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Pretty pertinent to what we're talking about today, so I'm going to read it again. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice there are two parts there. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil. The result is he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. He's not saying never be happy. Grieve over your sin. Grieve over the state of your heart that separates you from God. Grieve over the fact that you have been too much like the world and not enough like the Christ. Be mournful in your humility and God will lift you up. Lift yourself up and you put yourself in a spot where God's going to have to knock you down. Just like a good father does with a, with a 12-year-old or 13-year-old who gets a little too chesty. Fathers of boys, you know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. We all do it. A concept here is that we can't resist the devil without submitting to God. If we do that, we're doing exactly what Jesus is talking about in Luke 11. And it does no good to get the devil out if I don't get Jesus in. It does me no good to resist the devil in my own strength. Because he's not afraid of me. Amen. Jesus holds the authority. Flip back to the left a little bit. Actually, before we do that, just to save you some time, I'm going to have you go to 1 Peter because it's right after James. I'm going to take these a little out of my intended order, but I think you'll still get the gist of it. 1 Peter chapter 5. It's the very next book. Man, I wish I could read this whole book to you, but we're just going to read verse 8. Peter gives us a very important warning here in verses 8 and 9. He says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Man. As I'm reading that, I can't help but think of that great hymn that we sang by Martin Luther. Martin Luther lived in a time full of superstitions. Before he was slammed to the ground by the Lord to get his attention. As a part of the German people in the Middle Ages, he was afraid of everything. Because everybody was. The church used fear to keep you controlled. It was not a great time. And the German people had a mixture of pagan superstition and, unfortunately, false teaching of the church. So they believed that God was out to smite them all the time. And every shadow, every forest was haunted. Every shadow was a, a demon or an imp out to get you. And Martin Luther was terrified of that. When he came to know Christ, interestingly, after he was already a theology professor. That's an amazing thing. Teaching the scriptures, but not saved by his own account. When he came to know Christ, this hymn was flowing from his heart. All of the fear, all of the, the devils that filled this world, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, a mighty fortress is our God. Festeburg is unser God. 
This God of ours is stronger than anything going on out there. Luther believed. He knew the devil was real. No question about it. But he knew a Christ who was more real. I would that we would know that same thing. Peter says, watch out. He's on the prowl. Be alert and be of sober mind. That doesn't mean be paranoid. It doesn't mean be petrified. It doesn't mean, oh, the devil's out to get me. I got a cold. That must mean that Satan's attacking. Things didn't go right. It must mean that Satan's attacking. Let me tell you, it doesn't mean he's not either. The fact of the matter is we are in a battle all the time and we must be on guard. If you are deployed to Afghanistan and you're walking around Kabul just because there's no action going on at the time, you must remain aware. You cannot let your guard down because you never know when the attack is going to come. Now, there haven't been any, any attacks going on in a while. Everything seems peaceful. Everything's great. These locals are our friends. You let your guard down, people die. Same thing happens in our lives now. You can't live in fear. You can't walk around being petrified. Some of you are in that life right now. It's miserable, isn't it? Say amen if you know how miserable that is. God doesn't want that for you. By the end of today, I hope that you realize that there is a reason to be afraid and there is a reason not to. Having seen that in Peter, let's go back. You can read 1 John 5 on your own. Let's go back to Ephesians 6. Paul tells us what to do about it. I would love to develop this particular passage, but I want you to read it. Sometime when we go back to preaching through Ephesians, we'll, we'll pick it up. But you need to see it as we press on. Then we'll get into some of these points so that you can see it. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start with verse 10. Finally, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Not a little bit of the armor. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the, the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We've been talking about that already. We saw him write the same thing to the Corinthian church. This is not the visible battle around us, but there is a very real battle. It's taking place in the heavenly realms and has a direct impact on us. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, authorities, power. He's not talking about government. Don't, that's, I've seen it twisted that way. That's not what he's talking about. Spiritual forces. Therefore, verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all kinds of occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, just like Peter said, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This is why we pray together. There is an armor that we wear. In a nutshell, it comes down to obeying, to doing what the Lord tells us to do, embracing His truth, not our own, trusting in Him, that's that shield of faith, trusting in Him extinguishes the fiery arrows. Let's get into these points. You're getting tired of hearing me just talk and read. Hopefully you're continuing to read along with it because we need, we need to have our eyes on the Scripture. We need to have our ears filled with the Word. We need to have our hearts responding. First point, mark this down. The devil is real and he hates you. Uh, I tried to say it a little nicer so that it sounded like I was smart, but I'm not that smart so it doesn't sound that great. But the bottom line is very, very true. The devil is real and he hates you. It's very easy for us in an intellectual age, as intellectual people, to say, well, the devil's more mythology than anything else. I saw a, a program, a documentary-type program. I think it was the History Channel. It might have been uh, National Geographic. But uh, talking about the devil myth that has been throughout various cultures and so on. Listen, if you take the Word of God as anything other than a lie, you cannot escape the reality that there are evil forces at work. Not in some metaphorical way, but there is an actual person, an actual entity, referred to in Scripture as the dragon, the serpent, Lucifer, Satan, which means opposer, the accuser of the brethren, the devil, Beelzebul, is real. And he hates you. John 10.10 10 is a verse that you should write down. I, I didn't include it in there and I meant to and I failed to do that. John 10.10, 10, Jesus himself says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that they might have life and life to the fullest. The devil hates you and wants to wreck your life. That does not mean that he wants to take away your money and take away your joy. He loves that. That's great. But prosperity teachers get hung up on those things. The battle isn't about that. Because whether you're rich or poor, eventually you're going to die. And you can't take any of it with you. But there is an eternal reality. Paul writes to the Colossian church that what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. This is why our weapons are not like worldly weapons. Not not just weapons that you would use in a physical battle in the, in the army. We don't use weapons in the Air Force. We, we have officers go do that. I hear you back there. But the reality of things is that our weapons that we tend to use in the flesh are things like good planning, education, therapy, counseling, AA programs, 
going to see the pastor to talk about how we're going to fix our marriage. None of that stuff in itself does anything. They can all be useful tools. Don't misunderstand. All of those things have a place and are useful in their place. But none of them change the eternal reality that there's a spiritual battle going on. We might use crutches to try to prop ourselves up, to try to fix the situation, and there are physiological needs that require that. But very often, we try to medicate things away that God wants to deal with on a spiritual level for us. Please, do not hear me saying, go stop taking your meds. Please do not hear me saying, if your doctor recommends medication, that you should not take it. Again, there are very real reasons for us to do that. But we also give medications when we don't need them. We need to determine what's happening. Is it a spiritual thing? Because if it is, only prayer, discipline, obedience is going to help. We'll see that as we go along. <clears throat> the devil's real and he hates you. Peter said that he roams about like a lion on the prowl, looking for somebody, somebody to devour. If you know anything about lions, they don't hunt the pack. They hunt the stragglers. They hunt the weak. They look for those who are limping, who are slower than the rest of the herd. They never go out after the alpha stag uh, among the, uh, the antelopes out there. They look for the young, the infirm. If you and I are not on our guard, if we're not diligent to be seeking God on Tuesday at 3 o'clock instead of just on Sunday at 10 o'clock, then we will end up straggling. And we will put ourselves in position for the devil to attack. Understand that he's real and he hates you. <clears throat> he rages against the church. Note this. The battle you see is only a shadow of the battle you're in. The battle you see is only a shadow of the battle you're in. <clears throat> As Paul says these things to the church, he says the weapons that we're using, they're not physical. Because the battle we're in, it's not physical. We're talking about unseen powers that are real, but not sensory. They're real, but they're not perceived with our five senses. And we don't do battle with them according to our five senses. And the goal for them, the demonic strategy, if you will, the goal of the enemy, is not to make you unhappy. That's... <laughs> No. He hates God, therefore he hates you because you were created in the image of God. And if you are in Christ, he really hates you because he used to own you. And now he doesn't. Understand, he is the prince of this world. That's why it talks about the rulers here, the dominion. He has been given rule of this world for a time. Revelation chapter 10, I think it is, talks about it. 10 or 12, it's in there. Talks about it a little bit. There are other places. 
but I don't want to get sidetracked on it. Right now, the devil owns the world, but he won't forever. He's a defeated foe. His authority is temporary, and it is not authoritative over those who belong to Christ. We are in Christ. He has no power over Christ. And we have been joined with Christ through the cross. When we apply that by faith, when we get under the blood, as the Baptists like to say, when we take hold of what He did for us at the cross, we have what theologians would call a hypostatic union. We are joined with Him. We become one with Christ. Therefore, what is true of Christ becomes true of us. And the devil has no power over those who are in Christ. We need to recognize that this battle is only a shadow. You're going through a hard time right now? Maybe battling an addictive behavior that you can't seem to fix. That's not the battle. That's the skirmish that you're in. It's a part of it. There is a greater war for your mind, for your heart, for your soul. Don't get caught up in that. That's not going to save you if you stop drinking. Now, (laughs) if you're inebriated, it's really hard to think clearly, right? So you're going to have a much harder time waging war. You're going to have a much harder time applying what God is giving to you. But if you get fixated on trying to fix your sins, <laughs> you're going to miss the plot. I'm getting ahead of myself. The battle you see is only a shadow of the battle you're in. Notice this. You can't win. Jesus can't lose. You can't win. Jesus can't lose. Notice what happens in, in Luke 11. If you're not there, let's get back there. Because I got off a little bit, I want to come back to it. Jesus is driving out a demon that was mute. The demon left. The demon is real. That's why the story is here. It's not metaphorical. It's not made up. The devil is real. And he does bad things to this. This demon is doing bad things to this person. Jesus gets rid of him. There's more going on here than what is seen. The battle as Luke records it, is not about Jesus casting out the demon. That's, that's small potatoes for Jesus. The bigger portion here, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. As we look at the rest of this, is what is going on? Where are the minds of the people? Jesus doesn't want us to be confused about where his power comes from or how we overcome. The battle, is only a shadow, the battle we see is only a shadow of the battle we're in. But notice this. You can't win. Jesus can't lose. Jesus talks about a strong man here. Go down to verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. If he's got you, if you're not in Christ, you don't have to be tormented by a demon to belong to the enemy. If you're not consciously, actively surrendered to Christ, then you are either an enemy combatant or you are a captive civilian. If you're a captive civilian, the devil doesn't care. He's already got you. Now, you may not be actively working for him, but you are his captive. 
don't have to spend a lot of time chasing down POWs. They're already incarcerated. He's not afraid of weak people. All of us are weak people. If I face the devil face to face, man to man, no matter what Charlie Daniels says when, he, when the devil goes down to Georgia, it doesn't matter how well I play the fiddle, it doesn't matter how strong I think I am, how intellectual I am, how powerful my personality is, or how well I know the Bible. It doesn't even matter how well I know the Bible. I can bring a sign of a cross, holy water, doesn't matter what name is on your church or bumper stickers on your car, you lose when you face the devil yourself. But at the name of Jesus, it trembles. One little word shall fell on. The reality of, of all of this comes down to the fact that it's about Jesus. It's about the authority that Jesus has. If you are in Christ... He wins, therefore you win with him. There's a fantastic verse at the end of Romans. Oh, I'm going to have you turn there. I wasn't going to, but let's turn to Romans chapter 16. I really am going to speed this up, I promise. But you've got to see this. This is how Paul ends his letter to the Roman church. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Romans chapter 16. He wraps up verse 19 by saying, I want you to be wise about what's good, but innocent about what is evil. But notice this declaration, this encouragement that he gives to the church in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, Don't misunderstand, your feet don't have much to do with it. It's not that you're going to crush Satan because you're bigger and better and stronger and smarter. It's not that you're going to go get your devil stomping boots on like some country song and you're going to go chase the devil. But the thing that makes the devil run is the God of peace. The God of peace will crush Satan, but he's going to use your feet to do it. If you're in Christ... And Christ is stomping Satan. He's using your feet. God does the work. We just get on board. You can't win. Jesus can't lose. The devil isn't afraid of weak things. He's stronger than you, but he's not even comparable to the Lord. If you're in Christ, the devil has no power over you. Jesus has the power and authority to defeat and destroy demons. He rules over all things, which makes sense, doesn't it? The one who made all things, who created all things, rules all things. Note this. Fixing your situation is not winning the battle. Fixing your situation is not winning the battle. Jesus says if you clean out the house and the strong man comes back, it's even worse. Because now the strong man's got a clean house to work with. Let me put this in in military terms. If you come to a fortress and you throw the enemy out of the fortress, but you don't occupy the fortress, when the enemy comes back, he's still got a fortress. And if you've made repairs to it and you've cleaned it up, he's got a better fortress. 
If the battle is for your mind, for your heart, for your soul, and you're focused on trying to fix stuff down here, the devil loves that. Because now you think you've got it figured out. And if you've got it figured out, you don't need Jesus, right? Oh yeah, you might need some vague higher power because it makes it sound good. And we're made for that. We have a hunger for the eternal because we have the image of God in us. So yeah, we want higher power. But until we are broken, we don't realize our need. This is why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. It's not impossible, but it's really hard for a rich man to think he needs anything. I've got it all covered. If your life is all working right, if you have your best life now, then you don't have a good life coming. Here's the fact. The ultimate fact is that winning only involves you and Christ joined. That's what winning is. That's the definition of it. Fixing your situation is not winning the battle. Cleaning up my behavior is insufficient. Jesus wants to live in us, not just clean up the house for somebody else. The point of everything is union with Christ. Victory without Christ is loss. Don't repair the fortress for the enemy to occupy. Lastly, submission matters more than association. Submission matters more than association. As we see this uh, encounter in Luke, the rest of this chapter connects as well. We don't have time to cover all that, so we'll cover it next week. But, but all of this has to do with identifying with the sovereign God in Christ. It all keeps coming back to that. And it has to do with a real relationship from the inside out, not putting on external things. It's not about just hanging out with the crowd. Lots of people followed Jesus in the crowd, and when he was crucified, they all fell away. Lots of people go to church. That doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. The reality of this is you've got to get a hold of him. You've got to get a hold of Jesus. And that means, as he constantly said, repent. Turn from your way to God's way. Paul says in Ephesians 2, it's by grace you're saved. It's not because you cleaned yourself up. It says to Titus, it's, look man, this is not about all of your goodness. It's not by works of righteousness that we've done, but it's according to God's mercy that he saved us. Undeserved. We take hold of it through faith. He gives you the gift. Faith is unwrapping that. Getting your mind aligned with reality. Getting your will, your agenda aligned with His. Letting Him be the commander. When we do that, then we find that fixing our situation isn't really the point. If we chase after happiness, if we chase after a, a better way of living here, then we end up missing out on the real life. Jesus says if you try to save your life, then you lose it. But if you lose your life for His sake, it's not so much that I want to fix my life. I don't want it anymore. I want you. I want Jesus. When He becomes more precious to me than anything else, you know what ends up happening? Exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Your Heavenly Father knows you need all this stuff. He'll take care of that. Seek first His kingdom. 
Seek Him. And when you seek Him, the blessings will come. When you seek the blessings, they just become idols and you miss Him altogether. Submission matters more than association. Notice at the end of the, this passage that we read, verse 27, 28, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and who nursed you. This is the first, uh, the first Marian worship of sorts. Blessed is Mary because she gave birth to you and she nursed you. And Jesus said, yeah, that, that's good. I love my mama. Blessed is she, for sure. We know this. But not because she gave birth to me and nursed me. Blessed rather is those, are those who hear the word of God and obey. What's good about Mary? She heard and she obeyed. May it be unto me as you have said. I want to obey the Lord. If you want to get on board with Christ, if you want to win in the battle, then you must be aligned with his agenda. It's not enough to be in the uniform. It's not enough to be standing near the commander. What matters is, will you follow the orders? If you don't follow the orders, then there's no point in being there. Submission matters more than association. It's not proximity to Christ that matters, but obedience. Not immediacy, but intimacy. There's a dramatic different difference between having a relationship with the commander and following the orders of the commander. Understand this, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, and you're struggling, you can't seem to win the battle, you need to take a look at, yes, I have a relationship with Him, not questioning my salvation, but am I submitting myself to Him? If you are in Christ, you have all of the Holy Spirit. The question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? Or are you still holding on to your own control? Until we let go and let Him handle it. Until we decide that what Jesus commands, what the Lord commands, is more important than what we desire. And we're still at odds with Him. And the strong man still owns our house. Why does this matter? Because every single one of us is in a battle every day. Whether you recognize it or not, this world already belongs to the enemy. Those who belong to, the, to Christ don't belong to this world. Being ignorant of the war being waged all around us does not make it go away and it doesn't keep us safe. Ignorance is no excuse. So what difference is this going to make in my day-to-day, -day, how, how I walk this out? Every day we're fighting battles. Every day we go through struggles. Some of you are in a place right now where you know the struggle. It's very profound. We've been praying here in the family for those who are battling cancer, and we see it a lot. Man, it just seems like it's one thing after another. Some of you have had that week this week where everything just keeps hitting you in the face, and you're trying to get up, and as you're trying to get up, it's like it keeps coming one, one wave after another. And it's like the end of the Avengers movie. Thanos wins, right? It feels like... Everything is lost and there is no hope. Understand, this battle keeps on raging. And if you don't know how to fight it, there's no way that you can win. And if you think you can fight it through techniques and strategies, 
and cleaning up your act, then you've missed the point and you lose the battles. If you think that winning an individual battle is the same as losing the war, then you don't know how strategy works. The devil is happy to let you have your good life. He's happy to let you have your reputation as long as he keeps you out of the will of God for you. And the will of God for us often involves suffering. When we look at Psalm 91, it's not about everything being beautiful all the time. The psalmist writing it had a life that was full of difficulty and harm. The difference comes when we look at the, at the, the line between temporal harm and ultimate harm. How many of you know as parents we deliberately cause temporal harm to our children to teach them to avoid ultimate harm? When they do something that they should not, we apply artificial consequences, discipline, punishment, so that they don't do things later that will cause them ultimate harm. Understand, what we're facing every day that's not the ultimate battle. These are temporal things. And the Lord wants us to be fully His. If that means that He uses cancer to do it, if that means He uses a relationship that completely falls apart to do it, if that means He uses disappointment in another human to do it, He'll do whatever it takes. He wins. The question for us is, are we going to be on his side? Because it absolutely does not do any good to get the devil out if we don't get Jesus in. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you've given us your word to show us. To show us the way. To show us Jesus, who is the way. But Father, help us never, <laughs> never to pursue the plan at the expense of the planner. Not to pursue our destiny at the expense of pursuing you. Teach us that you are more precious than anything. So that we can overcome, not by our strength, not by our own hand, but by your spirit, for your glory by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Remind us that the battle is won or lost by Christ and losing is not on His agenda. It's already been won. The only question for us is will we get on board with what you're doing? We pray this in Christ's name.